Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. All right, so this week we have a double portion and we're closing out the book of Leviticus. And the portions are Bahar and Bahukotai. And over the past two weeks, we've been talking about generosity and stewardship and bringing the whole tithe into the house of God and how this is such an important part of our obedience to God and our walk with him because of the transformation the giving tithes and giving generosity and stewarding our money brings. It's transformative in us individually and as a body as a whole. Our heart is changed through the renewing of our mind with regard to who God is as our provider and how we approach him with gratitude and thanksgiving. And also we see that there are breaking off of curses and receiving of blessings and even multiplication of resources through God's hand. He also promises to protect from the destroyer. And as I've said over the past couple of weeks, I feel like this message is so important because there's a freedom that God has for us to walk in through his provision and the blessing that he wants to bring on our finances and in what he pours out into us. And what really stirred my heart in it was the aspect of, of seeing um, families not just here, but also in the, in the church abroad that were struggling financially and wondering how ends were going to meet. And I was just asking God, what, what's the problem? There are people who seek your face, who long to serve you and, and want to know you and live their life for you. You know, and I'm not saying that giving tithes and offerings is going to uh, be like this instant miracle where one day you give and the next day money shows up, but it very well could. The aspect is that we trust God, we go forward with him and believe on his word that he will take care of his children. And so bringing this and trusting God with our finances and resources, it requires a generous spirit good stewardship, and also requires faith. It requires faith in putting, our, in putting our trust in God. Now, I actually thought last week we were done with uh, the series on generosity and stewardship, but I feel like this week the real message, the main message to take away today is our need to trust in God in all things. And I feel like that's the perfect way of expressing how do we actually walk in this mindset and practice of generosity and giving unto God. And it's, it comes through trust. Now, the, tr- the tithe requires trust in God, but does giving a tithe put us in a place of having to trust in God? That's a question. Now, the first answer to that might be a simple, yeah, giving a tithe puts us in a place of having to trust in God. But the truth is, we're already in that position. Whether you're giving a tithe or not, you're in a place of having to trust in God because it is him who gives us the ability to produce wealth, as we read in Deuteronomy 8 last week. Everything comes from him. 
And so what the tithe does, it actually makes us come to terms with the fact that we have to trust God. Because we start to see how much more we have to rely on him as opposed to the work of our hand. It's almost like the easy thing is to say, well, I can produce, so I'm going to go produce, and I'm going to trust in my provision. The thing of trusting in God is being able to say, okay, I may not see how this works, but I know that God has built provision for his people into his economy. That is his desire as a good father, is to care for his children, to know their needs, to know their circumstances, and to call them to come and still sit in his lap and say, I'm going to take care of you. And so last week we read Proverbs 3, 9 through 10, which says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And now if we back up, just a few verses to understand the context of the, even this passage. In Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, the scripture says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Not according to your understanding, but according to his understanding. And so then I, I looked at the whole chapter of Proverbs 3, and, I, and it's it's just powerful from start to finish. So we're not going to read start to finish, but we're going to read a good portion of Proverbs 3 here. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, this, as a father, the son in whom he delights. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Now, as we read through that, a few things were standing out. One is, let your heart keep my commandments. Life and peace are the result. Write God's commands on your heart and trust in him, and he will bless and overflow your provision. And it speaks of the blessing that comes to the man who finds wisdom and gains understanding. And that that wisdom and understanding is greater than any wealth and riches that we can have here on the earth. The wisdom and understanding. With wisdom, God brought forth all of creation. The wisdom is the word of God. God's Torah. 
And Yeshua is the Torah made flesh who came and dwelled among us. Right? So blessed is he who takes hold of Yeshua, who is the tree of life. Because that value is far greater than anything we can gain in this earth. And God says, grab hold of him and he will bring you life and wholeness. Now take the words of God and write them on your heart and you will find life and peace. Right? This is, this is the equation for success, is trusting in God and our everything with our everything and looking to him as our provider. Now, you know, later on here in Proverbs 3, it talks about the wicked and it talks about the curse of wickedness, but the blessing towards righteousness. And I feel like this, this chapter is a parallel to this week's Haftarah from Jeremiah. And I want to read in Jeremiah 1 through 17. It's not the entire Heftara, but it's a good portion of it. And as we read it, just contrast the difference between this versus what we read in Proverbs 3. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their asherim, Beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains and the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Lord searched the heart, the Lord searches the heart and tests the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool or he will be desolate. Now, if we look at the comparison between the two, with Jeremiah, the sin is inscribed with an iron quill on a slate heart, whereas Proverbs says, may God's Torah, may his words be written on your heart. And we know of that as speaking of God writing his heart on a, on a heart of flesh, not of stone. And then wealth and treasure taken for plunder here in Jeremiah 17 versus barns filled and vats overflowing in Proverbs 3. Exile and servitude in Jeremiah 17 verses life and peace for, from Proverbs 3. Blessings and curses, both in this case and in the aspect of Proverbs 3. In Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful. In Proverbs 3, the heart needs wisdom and understanding. And then in Jeremiah 17, amassing wealth without justice results in loss. Whereas trusting in God to provide results in blessings overflowing. And as I was reading the passage in Jeremiah 17, I thought, well, what is it that makes one amass wealth apart from justice? 
Is it because they believe they won't get it otherwise? Do they trust in their own provision more than the Lord's provision? What Billy Graham used to say, God's blessing upon the nine-tenths when we tithe helps it to go farther than ten-tenths without his blessing. How many of you would believe that? I believe it. I believe it wholeheartedly. Because we know what God does when things are offered up to him in faith. We know what he's done through Yeshua with the feeding of the 5,000. Two fish and five loaves of bread feeds 5,000 men, not counting women and children, because God knows how to multiply that which is given into his hand from a willing heart, from a heart who trusts and says, God, I trust you. This is my whole meal. I'm going to give it up, even though it doesn't make any sense that this can't possibly do anything to 5,000 people in the natural. But in the hand of God, that gift can do far more. Now, So why is it that we don't give as freely to God as we know we should? And this isn't a, it's, it's just, it's a broad statement that I'm making because if you look at the surveys about the behavior, tithing behavior throughout the body of believers and even evangelicals, doesn't matter which class you talk about, the tithe is usually somewhere between like 1.8 and 2.5% is what people give to the Lord. And that's, that's really across incomes in general. I mean, the more income increases, you maybe get up to around 3, 3.5%. The adage that people often go through is, when I make more, I'll give more. The evidence doesn't seem to show that. It seems like that's more of something to help our heart feel good as opposed to be a true reality. And this problem isn't just a problem in the church. It's really been a problem throughout all time. It goes all the way back, even from the beginning. And there's what brings up the whole issue that Jeremiah is talking about that we read earlier, people trusting in man and not in God. And in this week's portion specifically, God talks about another aspect of generosity and trust in him that he requires the children of Israel to walk in, which is in the keeping of the Shemitah and the Yovel. At which time he tells them that in the seventh year they shall not sow or harvest, but that all the produce of the land will be for the poor, the Levite, and for the person whose land it is, but it won't be, it will be entirely shared. And God promises that he will give the provision needed to carry the children of Israel through it. But did the children of Israel follow that? No, they didn't. And the result that came from it was exile after 490 years. And so we're going to read some about that. But that's the circumstance that we found, that we found ourselves here with the book of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, this is a scripture that speaks specifically about it. The children of Israel have been taken into exile in Babylon. 
And the scripture says, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So here's God saying that there's a curse coming upon the children for not following his ways, but he will bring restoration. His plan is redemption. His plan is for good. But part of the plan is a call to repentance and a call to walk in his ways. And he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you. And in 2 Chronicles 36, 20 through 21, this passage is speaking also of the, of the exile in Babylon, where he says specifically here in verse 21, he says that, until the land enjoys its Sabbaths, all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And what this is talking about is that the Shemitah year had not been observed in all those 490 years. 490 years, there should have been 70 years of Sabbath for the land where it was not sowed or harvested. Yet because the children of Israel did not do that, the exile had to last 70 years to give the land its reprieve, to give it its rest. Now, the Shemitah and the Yovel, you know, I mentioned how it's a time of not sowing or harvesting. In the natural, that doesn't look like a good idea. Because you look and you say, I know what it's like to have little. How can I trust that by not sowing and utilizing the land to its full, that I will have enough? And so do I look to God to fulfill his word or do I look to me to be able to go and plow my, plow my field, sow it, and harvest? And unfortunately, instead of tapping into the freedom, the restoration, and the redemption that God wanted to bring through that season, the children of Israel chose not to partake of it and instead endured exile. That's one of the things with God's commands. To partake of the blessing, to be part of what he's saying that he wants to do, we have to step out in faith and walk with him in it. It may not be easy, but that's what God calls us to do. And the more we do, the more we see his faithfulness and the more we learn to trust in him, the more our faith grows. So let's take a look at the Shemitah and the Yovel. In Leviticus 25, Verses 1 through 13. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land 
shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and for the sojourner who lives with you and for all your cattle and for all the, for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. You shall count seven weeks of seven years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the, day of, on the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. All right, so this proclaim of release or of freedom, this jubilee, the land returns to its ancestral heritage, to its original owners who may have lost ownership of it due to poverty. The slaves are set free. This is talking of the slaves who became indebted and had to sell themselves as slaves because they couldn't provide for themselves. God was giving away for those who had become impoverished to be restored. God built it into his economy to restore that which was lost and to raise people up from being impoverished. And what it was going to require, debts to be forgiven, loans to be canceled, and people being able to go back to what God originally gave them. He said, you, just because you became impoverished does not mean you lost God's goodness and his blessing. Because he planned into his economy the way of redemption and the way of restoration. And when we talk about him planning into his economy the way of redemption and restoration, that economy is this physical economy, but it's also the spiritual economy. Where even though we would fall through sin and suffer separation and death apart from God, God would give us the path to salvation and redemption with the true Redeemer who would come and renew us out of our poverty into fullness of life. Within so many of these illustrations and stories, we see the principles of God's character as a faithful Redeemer and a lover of His children. We see it both in the physical and in the spiritual being played out. In both cases, God calls us to hide his word in our heart and to walk according to his ways. And then we would see the goodness overflow. In Leviticus 25, 18 through 22, God says how this is going to work. He says, you shall, therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them. And then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? If we may not sow or gather in our crop, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop and you shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. So God says, I'm going to pour out a blessing on you so that you can walk in my ways. And when you receive that blessing, walk in my ways, as opposed to looking to 
I need to take, I need to really corral this and hang on to it for fear that God may not provide in the future. No God is given and He has promised to provide if we will walk in His ways. And this sounds so familiar to what we talked about in the past couple of weeks, even primarily with the aspect of ordaining His blessing. So, so He brings in so much that it lasts all the way until the full harvest of the eighth year comes in. It ties right back to Malachi 3, 10 through 11, which says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse house that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear says the Lord of hosts so here he is it's the same aspect same principle of God saying trust me to pour out just listen to my voice, heed me, and I will pour out a blessing that cannot be contained. Now, in both cases, what does it require? Again, we've talked about trust in God and faith in Him. And trust that His Word is for our good and it's redemptive. When we read in Jeremiah chapter 21 about how God says, I know my plans for you, plans for to prosper you and not to do you harm, to do you good, to bring you back, to bring a re restoration to all that was lost. He cares for his children. He cares for his children. And we see in Leviticus 26, some of the promises of blessing that God gives. Leviticus 26, 2, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains and their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last until the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. Now, I'm going to move on from here. But again, God is reiterating his promise that he will establish his people and cause them to walk uprightly when they walk in his ways. And in Leviticus 26, 9, one of the things that he says in here, he says, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. When he says, I will turn to you, the expression of that is, my face will be upon you. My face will be upon you. And when I thought about this idea of God turning his attention to us, placing his face upon us, it brought me back to Second Chronicles 16.9, which says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And then the scripture that, like, the completion of that scripture says, you have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Now, when I've heard Second Chronicles 16, 9 quoted in the past, I haven't always heard that last sentence. I've always heard, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And that's a powerful passage, right? 
a heart devoted to God, given over to God, God actively seeks out to strongly support. But when I read the second sentence, I said, well, we need to look a little, at a little bit more of the context of what's taking place here. Why is there this rebuke on the back half of this promise? And in a greater context, what has happened is King Asa has placed his trust in man as opposed to in God. And I don't think I have the entire part here, so I'm going to flip in my Bible to Second Chronicles 16. Second Chronicles 16. First, they put us on their own story. All right, so what has taken place is that the king of Israel has come up to war against Judah. And Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And he sent them to the king of Aram. Okay? And he said, let there be a treaty between me and you. He gives him the silver and the gold and asks him to come and war with Israel for him. Now think about Think about the treachery of that. This is the treasury of the house of the Lord. And King Asa goes and plunders it, steals from God to send that to a foreign nation, to ask that nation to come and make war against his brother. Now, yes, he's under attack from his brother. Okay. But he's stealing from God to go and get the strength of man to be on his side. And so... The king of Syria or Aram comes and makes war. And Israel turns back because of that war and is no longer besieging Judah. So it looks like the plan has been successful, right? Because now the, the affliction that was coming against Judah has been turned back. But at that time here in 2 Chronicles 16, 7, at that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army and very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was enraged with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. Now the scripture goes on to say that later in life, Asa became sick and did not call on God, but called on the, on the physicians to seek his solution. Okay? But... What's happening here, the seer is telling him, you've done foolishly because even though you've acquired victory right now over Israel, this is a short-term victory. In the long term, you're going to face wars from now on. Your gain in trusting in man, you've received, it, you've received your reward in full. If you, and your reward is conflict. And difficulty. If you had trusted in God, 
Not only would you have had victory over Israel, the king of Aram would have been handed into your hand as well. Trust in God makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. Now, one of the things that the seer says, the reason why he says, verse 9, talking about the eyes of the Lord coming to strongly support those whose heart is his, he's referring to what took place with the Ethiopians and the Libyans. Now, to find out what happened with the Ethiopian and the Libyans, we have to look back just a couple of chapters. Now, I guess before we go into that, God knew the circumstances that King Asa was facing. God did not deny that Asa was under duress, that he was, that it was legitimate for him to look around himself and see that he had a trial and that he was in need and that he needed help. But God is the master of our circumstances. And just because we see a way out through the hand of man does not mean that's the way that God sees out for us. And in 2 Chronicles 14, we see that with this issue of the Ethiopians and the Libyans, that Asa did not start out with this mindset that he was walking in when he hired the king of Aram to come and fight his war. Back at his beginning here in 2 Chronicles 14 too, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the, the Asherim and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. He also took out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. He built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace. And he, and he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered. So you see, Asa's beginning was a call to faithfulness in God. And understanding that the reason that they had peace was because of God's protection. And we see the, the fruit of that when we continue on here in chapter 14, continuing on to verse 8. Now Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, bearing large shields and spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin, bearing shields and wielding bows. All of them were valiant warriors. Now Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Marashah. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zep Zephathah at Marashah. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you, and in the name and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. You contrast that with the response of, I see Israel coming against me, and I'm in fear, so I'm going to hire an army to come and make war on my behalf, versus I'm going to war against a million men, but I know who you are, God. And I know 
that there is no one besides you to help. And God gave a great victory that far exceeded what man could do on their own. And so within this, God knew, well, okay, let me, let me say it this way. In 2 Chronicles 16 and in 2 Chronicles 14, Asa was facing difficult circumstances where he knew that in his own flesh and in the strength of his men, he could not win. And God knew those circumstances. And in the case where he called out to God, God's eye was moving to and fro throughout the earth to strongly support those whose heart was fully his. And God came to his rescue. And in the other case, he received a short-term victory because he trusted in man and not in God, who was the one who would deliver not only from Israel, but also from Aram, and who would give him peace instead of wars continually. And I'm mentioning the circumstances here because I've heard it said, you know, that tithing is a matter between you and God. And he always takes into account your circumstances. And he knows when your circumstances are beyond your power to direct and control. And so it's okay if you don't give or if you just give a little. And that sounds like really good counsel because that sounds like a compassionate God, right? Who sees us and understands our, our weaknesses and, and knows our frailties. But that's not the God I see in Scripture. The God I see in Scripture says, I know your circumstances, but I'm greater than your circumstances. He doesn't say, oh, your circumstances are really tough right now. I don't know what I can do. Now, I'm being a little emphatic there because that's what I see the statement of man saying. It's like, it's okay. I'm not trying to be uncompassionate here. I'm trying to say we need to renew our mind of who our God really is. He is not subject to our circumstances. He has said, you give, you be generous, you do according to my will, and I'm going to pour out blessings upon you, and I'm going to prevent the destroyer from coming, and you will have peace. Will you have trials? Will you have difficulties? Will you be brought to a place of abandon and saying, God, I, you're my only hope? Yeah. There are going to be times that we face that. But in those times, we have to remember who our God is and what his word is and the promises that he has made. And then in faith, in trust in this God who is not just overall, but is also a loving father who cares for us and sees our anxieties and knows us inside and out. And who says, I have plans to prosper you and I promised in my word to bless you to know that he's going to make good on his word. You can take it to the bank. God is faithful. And he is the one who can direct our circumstances and has power to deliver, even against the greatest obstacle, against the greatest army. In 2 Chronicles 15, 1 through 8, as we continue on here, this passage... Let me see, there may have been something before this I wanted to say. Okay. Um, th so this is chapter 15, 
is after the victory from the Ethiopians. Second Chronicles 15, verse 1. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. There are so many within the passage of Proverbs and Jeremiah and what we're reading here and Leviticus, there's so many overlaps of God looking for a heart that is hopefully his and God saying, you will seek me and find me with you. when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. And that's what the prophet says here. He says, take courage. Don't let your hands be weak for your work shall be rewarded. God will be found by you. And the, the reality here is that God is our provider in all things. And Yeshua, too, tells us not to be anxious in anything. In Matthew 6, verse 25 and 26, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And he continues on speaking about even how Solomon was not arrayed as the, as the grass of the field, and yet that is temporary, and you are not. He says, continuing in verse 31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, you know that word righteousness is tzedakah. Tzedakah can be righteousness, and it can be charity. Both meanings are valid, right? We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his generosity, and all these things will be added to you. Now, this, this passage where Yeshua is talking about not being anxious and worrying about what you're going to have because God cares for you and is going to provide for you. The verse that precedes this and the passage that precedes this is what we read two weeks ago, speaking about not putting our faith in mammon or in wealth, putting our faith in God. So if we back up just a little bit and look in Matthew 6, 19 through 24, that leads into this, 
The scripture says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, in in other words, if your eye is generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or greedy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, as we've talked about this in the past couple of weeks, this isn't a question of whether you're supposed to be in poverty or in great wealth. It's not an issue of saying, well, we need to walk in poverty. That's not what we're to do. We're to walk in the abundance of God's provision and blessing, a blessing that overflows such that we walk in prosperity and we walk in blessing others. It's not a prosperity gospel of giving to get. It's giving that we may give unto the kingdom and for God's glory. And as we do, he pours out the blessings And just as an evidence that God does not desire everyone to walk in poverty, look at what he gave to Solomon when when Solomon asked for wisdom and understanding that he might lead the people. God blessed him with riches, great riches. It's not about having wealth or not having wealth. It's about having all that we give be fully devoted unto God, trusting in him as our provider. And again, the aspect here is a call to trust in God, to trust in him beyond what the natural says is reasonable, and to trust in him as the one who can deliver us from our enemy, who can protect us from the destroyer, who can meet our needs, who knows our needs, even before we know that the need is coming. And has said that he would open up the heavens and pour out a blessing that cannot be contained when we walk in faithfulness unto him. And who has said that in his provision for us, it'll be enough to provide for us and for those around us if we will just walk in that generous spirit. And again, I know we've mentioned this a couple times, it's going to take walking in generosity and walking in stewardship of what he's given to us. Because even as we look in Matthew, I believe it's Matthew 25, there's the parable about the talents. We won't go through and read it now. Is that where it is? I believe it is. Yes, it is. I got it right. Okay, good. (laughs) But anyway, but the, the thing is, God gives to each according to their ability. And he knows our ability. And that's why he gives according to our ability, so that we can then take and produce according to what he's given. And he expects us to produce with what he's given us. And there will be an account that we give when he returns and asks for what we've done with it. And to those who have been faithful in little will be given more. To those who have been faithful with much will be given more. But those who don't walk in faithfulness, even what they have would be taken and given to those who do walk in faithfulness unto God. 
what it comes down to is how much can we come to believe that God's word is true and that he's going to fulfill his word. And we need to look at the examples in the Bible and in examples of what people have shared of their testimonies of faith to encourage us and to strengthen us in the way. And as we step out in faithfulness, God will increase our faith to continue to walk and to move forward and to gain a testimony that we can then share and be a blessing to others. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. As we wrap up the book of, Levit of Leviticus and consider what God's calling to in faithfulness unto him, And we conclude, as we conclude the book, one of the things that we always say at the end of one of the books of the, the Torah is Chazak, Chazak, Vanitasek. Be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. Right? It's the strength of the Lord that we need to be able to get up in the morning, to go forward in what he's set for us for the day. And that's one of the key aspects of walking in faith with God is taking it one day at a time. We may look and say, here's the perfect, here's the ideal that I'm aiming for. And I'm not there yet. But what has God given me today to do that is going to take me one step further along the path of faithfulness to God so that he's going to walk with me side by side and carry me when I need carrying, give me encouragement when I need encouragement, but create the path that is prosperity, that is righteousness. And so that's the question is to ask him today. We've been going through our kingdom culture formation class of focusing on prayer and communion with God, deepening our relationship with him. In the past couple of times we've met, we've talked about hearing the voice of God and how we begin to hear the voice of God, how we can practice that. And one of the key aspects of doing that is setting an appointment and setting a time to meet with God. And in that time of prayer and communion with him, saying, Lord, what do you have for me today? What is the small step of faithfulness today that you're calling me to walk in? And then hearing his voice and going out and doing that. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit and he is active in speaking to us and desiring that communion with us. Our responsibility is to make the time that we may hear his voice, know his will, and say yes to what he's asking today. And when we do, we'll find him strengthening, strengthening us and providing for us as we walk along the way. So as we get ready to close out the book of Leviticus, I want to read, the, the as we always do, we read the last few verses of the book, and then we together say, Chazak, Chazak, Benit Hazak. Um, I didn't load it here, but Leviticus 27, 30 through 34. Any tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, of the fruit of the tree, belongs to the Lord. 
It is holy to the Lord. If a person shall redeem some of his tithe, he shall add its fifth to it. Any tithe of cattle or of the flock, any that passes under the staff, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not distinguish between good and bad, and he should not substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then it and its substitute shall be holy. It may not be redeemed. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded to Moses, to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. And now together. Chazak, chazak, vanit chazek. Be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. You're a good father. And thank you, Lord, that you have built it into your economy and your way for us to have redemption, to have restoration, and to have provision. Thank you, Lord, that the eyes, that your eyes move to and fro throughout the earth to strongly support those whose heart is fully yours. Lord, may our heart be fully yours. May we look to you and not our circumstances. May we look to you and not the strength of our hand to be our provider in whatever it is that we face. When we face trials and difficulties, may we, may we take those anxieties and uncertainties before you. May we lay them at your feet and invite you to come and be redeemer, our redeemer and our healer, the one who proclaims freedom to us. Lord, we thank you for your provision and protection from the devourer. May you strengthen us and help us to hear your voice so that we may know what you have for us today and to walk in your ways, giving you honor and glory. May you renew our minds in those of gratitude and thanksgiving that we could come and present what you have given to us back to you as an offering and a thanksgiving to you. May you move mightily in our midst. May you show yourself faithful. We trust in you, Lord. We bless you and ask these things in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.